Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Dr. Simon, and the show is called The Stories We Live By. And I have a very, I'm excited to have the guest today that I do, uh, attorney uh, Jim Gottstein, who is going to discuss uh, a book that he has just put out, a very important book, I believe, extremely well written. Uh, so let me introduce him first, uh, give some information about him. Uh, he writes that since brief psychiatric hospitalizations in 1982 and 1985, Harvard-trained lawyer Jim Gottstein has advocated and litigated for people diagnosed with serious mental illness, including participating in successful litigation, reconstituting Alaska's one million acre mental health land trust, and second, the Myers case, declaring Alaska's forced drugging law, and we'll talk a lot about that today, unconstitutional for failing to require proof of the drugging is in the best person's best interest and that there are no less intrusive alternatives available. And three, Weatherhorn, another case holding unconstitutional Alaska's law authorizing involuntary commitment for being gravely disabled without requiring proof the person is unable to survive safely in freedom. And four, Wayne B., requiring strict compliance with procedural protections before someone could be locked up and drugged against their will. And five, Bigley, holding uh, if a less intrusive alternative to forced drugging is feasible, the state must provide it or let a person go. And Heather R. vacating and reversing an order for an involuntary psychiatric evaluation because the court did not try to interview Heather R. before issuing the order without notice. Outside of Alaska, in the X. Rel. Watson case, the Seventh Circuit validated psych rights. That's an organization that uh, Jim will describe that he created, and we will talk about that. Um, psych rights analysis that doctors cause false claims when they write prescriptions to children on Medicaid that are not medically accepted for a medically accepted indication. In the first of his numerous Bigley cases, Mr. Gottstein subpoenaed and released the suppressed Zyprexa papers, showing Eli Lilly engaged in illegal marketing and hid that Zyprexa caused diabetes and other life-threatening conditions, resulting in a series of New York Times articles. In 2020, Jim published his book, The Zyprexa Papers, relating to the legal battles around the release of the Zyprexa Papers and his numerous representations of Bill Bigley fighting or struggling. Good afternoon to you, Jim. Thanks, Larry. I'm pleased to be here. So tell me a little bit about, uh, let's start with psych rights and define what that is and how you got involved with that, because that's really what led up, if I understand it, to your getting involved with the Zyprexa papers. Yes, well, um, in 2002, I read uh, Bob with Robert Whitaker's terrific book, Mad in America, uh, which right. I highly recommend. And uh, it's a terrific read. Uh, and, but to me, 
in addition to that, it was a litigation roadmap for how to challenge sports drugging uh, based on uh, challenging the assumption that uh, the drugs are in people's best interest. He cited all these studies and and such. And um, I got uh, Bob to send me those articles, which are now posted on psychrights.org, along with a lot of other information. And it uh, galvanized me to uh, found the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, Psych Rights. Um, and the Psych Rights mission is to mount a strategic litigation campaign against forced psychiatric drugging and electroshock, and also to inform the public about uh, the you know, basically the harmful and counterproductive nature of these drugs. And let me introduce, stop you at this point, because I don't think a lot of uh, listeners um, understand exactly. The, the whole process of having somebody declared mentally ill and then against their will locked up in a psychiatric hospital and drugged or electroshocked. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think uh, uh, when you hear about it, and I certainly even myself knew about it, but until I started reading about Bill Bixby and some of the others and what they did and how the court system operates uh, and what happens to people, which I have written about extensively, what happens once a diagnosis of a serious mental illness is made of somebody. Let's talk a little bit about that. What happens to somebody uh, if, if somebody in their family or, or the police or somebody wants to have them institutionalized uh, against their will? So there are um, variations between the states and, you know, around the world. But basically, uh, and I'm most familiar with Alaska, um, and in Alaska, any adult can file a petition to have someone be hauled into the hospital and, quote, evaluated uh, for possible commitment. Um, and that's uh, normally done without notice to the person. So the first thing, they don't even talk to the person. Um, and what usually the person is doing something that is, you know, troubling, uh, either bothers other people or, you know, family members can be concerned. Um, and, uh, but, but rather than try and deal with the person, the, oftentimes the first thing that happens is the police show up at the door and uh, put, usually put the person in handcuffs and uh, haul them into the, you know, psychiatric hospital where they're locked up and then given, you know, this, quote, evaluation. And if it's determined, if the psychiatrist determines that the person is a danger to self or others as a result of a mental illness, um, then they, they file a petition for commitment for a longer period of time. These evaluations in Alaska, they're supposed to be done within 72 hours, not counting weekends. Other places, people can be held up to 10 days. And then the commitments can last for longer period. You know, then they last for longer periods of time. Um, and uh, there's also this uh, danger to self, you know, kind of typically is. Uh, considered something like being suicidal, 
Uh, but there's this other category called being gravely disabled. It might be uh, phrased another way, which is a person is supposedly so disabled uh, that they can't take care of themselves. Um, so that's that's what uh, initiates it. And then there, then if there's a commitment petition filed, then they go to court, which I think can fairly be described as a kangaroo court in most instances. Um, yes. And uh, people are then committed, and sometimes for a year, sometimes for less, uh, and then they can be kept there. Um, and people, the hospitals these days, psychiatric hospitals, only know, in my view, only know giving people drugs, which are not really therapeutic. What they do is they just uh, clamp down on people's behavior so that they can't be so uh, troublesome, at least in the short term. Right. And, and when, uh, if people read your book, it's clear that there's no such thing as a psychiatrist finding somebody mentally healthy. <laughs> Everybody can be found, for one reason or another, mentally ill. And the courts and the lawyers who, who uh, come in from the hospital uh, and, and present, you know, present the legal issue of putting them in the hospital are all on the same page. They are mentally ill, um, however it's defined, and often it's just not, it's just some kind of behavior that could be passing behavior. It, it could take a week or two weeks, and it would have resolved itself if they were given some kind of support and an understanding of what put them in crisis in the first place. Uh, so that it's kangaroo, as you use, it's a kangaroo court. There's no escaping from it once this net has been thrown over the individual. Yes? Yeah, and one of the really sad things is that um, the people uh, assigned to represent uh, the patients, oftentimes public defenders, they, they often basically have bought into it, and they feel like if their client wasn't crazy, they'd know that it's, it's good for them to be locked up and drugged against their will. And so right. they don't really put up any defense, and it's just not true. Being locked up itself, many, many patients uh, feel that the uh, experience of being locked up in a psych hospital was far worse than whatever was causing their problems in the first place. So not only yeah. do, they, do they have to deal with what brought them there, they, they have to deal with what happened to them there. And, and therefore, as a person... They're dehumanized. They have no rights. And the more they protest, because I've seen this over and over, the more you say, I'm not mentally ill, the more proof that you are mentally ill. <laughs> and I said, no, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, There's no such innocence. Uh, in a way, this is worse than if they put you in jail for a defined period of time. Well, it's one. Oh, yes, way worse. And one of the. Um, things that's so insidious about the, you know, the medical model of mental illness, which is that there's some kind of brain defect, is that the you know, they have this idea that people's behavior and their thinking, their basically crazy thinking, uh, um, 
is the product of just misfiring neurons and not the result of their experiences and what happened to them and, you know, and trying to deal with all that. And so, um, uh, so it's just exactly the wrong approach to, you know, what has caused people to behave in this way. You know, and in my writing, I, I over and over again try to make the argument that if, in fact, all of these behaviors, and there are now over 500 diagnostic categories uh, that you can be labeled with. Uh, when I came into the field, it was like 25. Um, and, and most people receive some kind of supportive psychotherapy, not drugs. Since then, it's all drugs for all the 500 categories of, of illnesses. And my argument is, and it's a simple argument, if, in fact, it can be shown that any or all of these behaviors are the result of some neurological misfiring, some kind of neurological problem, then they're not mental illnesses and shouldn't be called mental illnesses. They're actual medical illnesses, medical problems, and should be treated by neurologists or endocrinologists, if it's chemical imbalance theory that they keep pushing, and not locked up and drugged uh, with, with drugs that have no demonstrable effect on fixing any of the underlying chemicals or, or neurological misfirings that are being purported to happen. And you can't get anybody, I can, it's very frustrating to see, stop calling it mental illness and call it what it is if it's physical illness. But for God's sakes, provide proof that that in fact exists. Before you lock somebody up and hold them down, I mean, some of the descriptions uh, that, 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 you know, in your book and, and other places where people are literally tied down and injected with chemicals or, or shocked against their will. It, I can't imagine it's as violent an assault on a person's a psychological being as you could have. Right. So... You've been fighting this for how many years now since, what did you say? Well, I, you know, I, it's kind of varying degrees, but uh, really uh, in terms of psych rights, it, it's since uh, late in 2002. Um, so it's, a, it's, so it's eight, uh, 18 years, you know. Yeah. Nine. Okay. Now let's go to the Zyprexa papers because they're also extremely important. And how did you get involved with that? And what exactly happened that you were able to get the, uh, and then I want to talk about what you described, what happened when you went up against the, law, the lawyers for the drug company, Eli Lilly. I mean, that was just, it's, it's, that's a movie. <laughs> you should, somebody should make a movie of that. That's a good <laughs> idea, I think. Um, uh, uh, uh. Film uh, noir. Well, hmm? It's a film noir. <laughs> uh, black black comedy. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I I think it could be a movie. Uh, but yeah, I uh, in the the Myers case, uh, Faith Myers was uh, they were. You know, they wanted to drug her with Zyprexa, and I had this really terrific psychiatrist, Grace Jackson, write a report on 
Hydroxy with the the uh, generic name is or chemical name is olanzapine, called olanzapine dubious drug, uh, dubious e- dangerous drug, dubious efficacy, um, and uh, so that was on the internet. And I got this call from uh, Dr. David Eagleman, an expert witness in this giant uh, multi-district litigation involving thousands of cases against Eli Lilly by people who had uh, gotten diabetes or other metabolic problems from uh, Zyprexa. And he um, ostensibly, you know, he ostensibly the reason for the call was he wanted to know about information I had on Zyprexa. But what he really wanted to know was whether I would subpoena him for documents that he had access to uh, as an expert witness where he could not legally, they were subject to a secrecy order. And and, um, one of the rules under the secrecy order was if he was subpoenaed, then uh, he had to give Lily notice and a reasonable opportunity to object before he uh, gave me the documents. So, (laughs) so I, I, uh, agreed to do that, and I mean, I was anxious to do it. Once I learned about these documents, I said, "Yeah, I want to. Well, I want to know about these suppressed they documents." They died from Zyprexa. Do they have any idea how many people actually died? Because I, when I read the book, I think you mentioned there were thousands of people who may have died from this drug. You know, I asked Dr. Peter Gercher, who wrote. Uh, Deadly psychiatry and organized denial. Uh, if he thought I had overstated that, and he he said basically he thought hundreds of thousands of people had been killed by Zyprexa. Hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about mass murder here. If if it can be shown, and I think it's shown that Eli Lilly knew the effects of this drug. We're talking about mass murder, aren't we? Or am I yeah, overreacting? Yeah, that's one of the things that you know Ted Chabazinski, you know, uh, raised in in the, in the legal proceedings with, um, you know, in in front of Judge Weinstein, is that this was basically murder, and uh, it it uh, basically is just kind of amazing how these legal proceedings lose complete sight of the big picture and it all became um, whether or not uh, you know I had violated and Dr. Eagleman had violated uh, the the secrecy rule rather than you know the court uh, basically going along with hiding information that that was uh, causing you know literally thousands upon thousands of people to be killed and you know, uh, otherwise damaged. But, well, who puts out this? How does the secrecy order come into uh, being? So there's this in in, uh, civil litigation, you know, normal lawsuits against, you know, lawsuits for damages or something like that. There's what's called this discovery process where you get to get information from the other side. And one of the provisions is that you can ask for what's called a protective order uh, to make, you know, make that stuff confidential. 
Uh, and there are rules around that. And one of the rules is, you know, there has to be a good reason for it to be, you know, kept secret. And it has, it cannot be against the public interest. Um, but it, it just makes it way easier for the lawyers to agree to keep things secret because then they, then the companies, you know, the defendants are more, you, you know, won't fight about giving up the information. And so there's no one really there advocating for the public interest. Um, and so if the plaintiffs and the defendant, uh, you know, come to an agreement about a secrecy order or practice, protective order, the judge will normally just sign it, even though they're not supposed to. Why do they do that? Although I'm going to give you a theory later about why all of this happens as it happens, where there's no, just no questioning about about the, uh, uh, you know, how this all starts to work. Um, but why, why would the judge who sworn to uphold the public interest simply sign off on something that is so obviously against the public interest. They, I mean, you can't uh, minimize their interest in getting cases resolved. And so this is a way to make cases move faster and you don't have all these fights about, uh, you know, what documents have to be produced and all that. So, it just makes it easier uh, for the litigation to proceed. I think that's that's the way to look at it. And in this case, um, there were literally, I think, when push came to shove with all of them, fifty thousand separate lawsuits that were in, in around the country, in state and federal courts, that were consolidated into this one case for discovery and settlement purposes. And so. That's what that's that's was Weinstein Judge Weinstein's big I think biggest concern is how to get these cases as many of these cases resolved as quickly as possible. Mm. Mm. So you don't think that Judge Weinstein was kept up at night about the implications of what was being dealt with here? Thousands of I deaths. Do not. See, I'm a psychologist, Jim, <laughs> and I approach it from a psychological point of view. I always ask, what does somebody experience when they're involved in something like this? What do they do to, when they know something and then somehow try to get rid of what they know? See, I always ask the question, can you really not know what you know? How do you, how do you lay awake at night knowing what's going on and saying my primary aim is just to get rid of these cases, just get them resolved. I really don't have an answer for that. It's beyond my psychology. And I wish somebody would help me really understand. I mean, when I watch the political situation that's going on in the United States, and I don't want to get into that, you know what's going, these people know what's going on. And yet, they go along as if they don't know what's going on. Um, it's really quite amazing because the damage that's being done to people by the, the legal system is enormous. And it doesn't seem to bother anybody 
except you and me and a few other people. Okay, other people. I mean, there's this when when I was in law school, there was kind of this new idea uh, called critical legal studies, and the the idea is that the legal system is basically there to protect the status quo, the people in power, you know, and um, you know, I've kind of. <laughs> I don't think that's always true, but it's, uh, you know, I think there's a pretty large element to that. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not a cheery thought, but I agree because there has to be some kind of principle at operating here. Um, uh, because but I, I, I mean, agree are you, with you, I mean, I, the, this issue of people's motivations, I, I really try and understand it. I mean, I think I think the same thing about all these psychiatrists and other mental health workers who, you know, continue to push these drugs, even though um, that, you know, the evidence that they don't, you know, they're not helpful to most people. I mean, there are a few people that find them helpful um, and uh, they cause all this harm. And how is it that they, you know, I think they think they're doing good. And how how can that be? Well, do they? You, you don't know. You really don't know what four o'clock in the morning when somebody opens their eyes, what they're really thinking and what's nagging at them. Because I happen to believe that human beings, uh, in order for us to survive as groups, all have to have some kind of sense of morality about what we do in relation to other human beings. Uh, one of the things I write a lot about in my book uh, is anybody who killed, I worked with a lot of cops who killed in the line of duty uh, over the years, and soldiers, especially when the ones came back from Vietnam. Um, you can't kill somebody unless you see the person you killed as not human, as less than human, without suffering terrible guilt. You, nothing could be the same after that. And what we see over and over again is, is this kind of a... a, a you know, you, you just go with the power or go where the money is. But it has to hurt on some level. It has to eat you out and hollow you out on some level. I have to believe that. Otherwise, as a species, we, we, we really are some evolutionary mistake that's operating here. Um, but I want to give you a little theory to see what you think of this. Um, psychiatry and the whole... The mental health system is really a religion, and and uh, I don't know if you've read any of Harari, uh, Noah Harari's books. Uh, the last one was just wonderful. It's Twenty One Lessons for the Twenty First Century, but he had another one called um, Sapiens: A Short History of Humans, uh, and basically he argues uh, that we hold on to these stories. We believe in stories. And most of these stories operate as a kind of a religion. And a religion, he says, doesn't have to be secular. It can be, uh, 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 it can be a non-religious story. It's based upon a set of facts and a set of morals. This is the right way to behave, and this is the truth about things that are taken on faith merely by some authority saying you have to take it on faith. And, he, and, and I really then believe that if you look at psychiatry, all of the evidence that could obliterate the whole DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, could be, you could make an argument 
but it doesn't go anywhere. And so the judge and the lawyers, because I, I want to have your opinion on, uh, what was it, last Fahey? You had tremendous amount of interaction with him. He was the Eli Lilly lawyer that you had right. to deal with. They're all embedded in the same religious story. Okay? So it's not merely just to get rid of the case, although I think that that's a perfectly big part of it. It's that this is how things have to be seen. Otherwise, the whole system crumbles and falls down. Right? And, and that's what I think a lot of – I can't prove that, but that's what I believe. Well, so I, that, you know, yeah, I mean, I think – you know, I mean, the judge wrote, he said, well, some people claim this drug, you know, damaged them this way. And, and um, you know, Eli Lilly and, and its lawyers would say, well, you know, on balance, the, the, the benefits, you know, greatly outweigh, you know, the harms. And so I think, you know, which is not true. But no, I think and they basically delude themselves into believing that in order to – Because they have to. Mind. Because I really think they have to. Otherwise, you have to look at the story that you're living by and recognize that the story is both factually untrue and morally un insupportable. And this is not what happens. Throughout human history, it's not what happens. And so all of the people are embedded in the same story. At this point, the, the DSM is not questioned by virtually anybody. And if you do a question it, you're attacked. You're a heretic. Although the word well, heresy you know, Thomas Inso, mm -hmm. Thomas Inso, of the uh, former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, actually said that um, the DSM was, you know, the categories were invalid. So, but, yes, you know, they are. That, nothing, nothing happened as a result of that. I mean, basically, the DSM, no. I think, is a billing manual. Right. Right. It's uh, a billing right. manual. It's a book of insults. Yes. Well, that's what I, I argue. It's bad names that you call people with devastating consequences because once somebody's identity is that I'm, it's not even I am, I have schizophrenia, uh, I am schizophrenic. You now have an individual who has been defined as broken, permanently broken. Right. And they, how do you escape that? Um, tell me about the lawyers that you had to deal with from, from, with Lily. And what does it do to you? By the way, what, <laughs> I, I know this is a personal question, but how do you deal with this day after day, week after well, week? You know, I feel like I'm fighting the good fight, and so, um, uh, and I actually, I mean, I, I'll digress a little bit, which, and this was a huge mistake on my part. I sued like 33 defendants in Alaska federal court for um, drugging children with uh, basically uh, neuroleptics, um, mm -hmm. and because basically most of it goes, you know, it's billed to Medicaid, and it's not allowed under Medicaid. Um, and so I, I was up against like 33 lawyers. And, did, you know, I, I, uh, I enjoyed that, you know, uh, doing battle against all these people. But it, it ended up being a huge mistake 
to see Why? So many people be because under the False Claims Act, they say if if um, the false claims have been you know the fraud has been publicly disclosed, then you don't get this, you don't win. And so the judge basically said, well, gee, everybody's doing it. The government knows about it. Who cares? And and uh, dismissed the this you know dismissed the case. If I just picked the you know the uh-huh. worst ones, just a one one or two, then it would have. I think I would have had a better chance. Yeah. In other words, get over it. We've both heard those words recently. Right. We're going to do it. We've been doing it. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. It's and the, the amount thing. of harm that's been, yeah, the, you know, the amount of harm that's been done to children and especially foster children. I mean, you know, they get hauled out of their houses because it's been found that they've been the subject of abuse or neglect, um, which may or may not be true, but probably true. But even if not, you know, if it is true, then that, you know, you know that's traumatic and causes children to be, you know, behave and quote act out, um, and then they get hauled. But even as bad as their, you know, homes might be, getting hauled out, um, that's traumatic and can, you know, cause them to act out. And then these foster care placements are often horrific, um, and that can cause them to act out. And they all get quote mental health evaluations. And um, and so then it said that, you know, they have some kind of defect in their brain that needs to be drugged for the rest of their lives uh, instead of, help, you know, helping them deal with these things that have happened in their lives. Right, um, right. Anyway, it's a digression, but. Um, well, except it's part of the same story that we're talking about. Somebody just called in. I don't recognize the number, but let me see who it is. And uh, you, you don't mind, do you? No. Okay, let's see. Hello. Hello. Who's calling in? My name is Wayne. And what do you want to say? You've been listening to this, Wayne? Yes, as a matter of fact, I just started listening about 10 minutes ago because I was running late, and I had gotten an email from Jim yesterday, and I wrote back and said that I would be trying to listen, Um, and I have been for about 10 minutes. But let me just say this real quick. I don't know what the outcome of all this is going to be, but I'm a regular person who was living a regular life. I I grew up in a middle-class working family. I'm now almost 59 years old, and I'm going to give you a really quick version of what I'm trying to say, but uh, 28 years ago, I had a primary care doctor give me a prescription for Xanax. I had no clue, no information like we have now, and that precipitated into tricyclic SSRI mood stabilizers. And then finally, by 1999, these so-called doctors gave me a drug called Risperdal. For, for what reason? I have no clue. I never heard anything that wasn't there. I never saw anything that wasn't there. I never had any delusions. That doesn't matter. I had been in my job at that point for nearly for nearly 20 years, and because of all of that, in 1999, 20 years ago, I could no longer function, and I had been disabled now for 20 years, 20 years, and it took me, it took me until about 2008 
before I started reading things and hearing things and hearing other people's stories. This is a huge, 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 uh, you know, anatomy of an epidemic, the book, what Jim has worked on, and how they are able to continue to get away with this. It is criminal. Yes, but you see, it's criminal except that it's justified by the story, by the religious story of psychiatry. See, this is not science. I'm sorry, your first name is what? I, 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 Wayne. 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 Wayne, this is, there's no science here. What there is is a kind of a story that's gotten hold of, of a society. Um, the, I always tell people the last time anything this bad happened... It was called the Inquisition. And over two million people were put to death because it was believed and they could prove that they were inhabited by witches or warlocks or, or evil demons. And the torture that they were put through, you know, they were given tests. So you put somebody heavily laden with rocks and drop them into deep water. If they floated, they were guilty. But if they drowned, they were innocent because they, they drowned. Or they were set on fire. They were burned at stakes, hundred at a time. And this went on for a hundred years. And you say, how could that happen? Because the capacity of human beings to believe what they want to believe when authority tells them something doesn't have to have facts. My argument is what we all need is enough education to recognize what we see with our own eyes. And then what Jim does, I mean, he has my admiration from, I can't measure the admiration I have for him. He goes off and he fights this constantly. And ultimately, hope, you hope that something will dent that particular set of stories. But there's no facts there. No, there it isn't. Is a, and and, and uh and there's one other book, too, and I know we're talking about Jim's book, the Zyprexa Papers, but there's another book by Dr. Gracie Jackson, M.D., which I'm sure Jim is familiar with her, and her book is by called way, I am Drug, too. I know very well, too. Drug-Induced Dementia, A Perfect Crime. And I am a person who they stole my life from me, and yes. I want justice. That's what I want. I want justice. I want justice for what they what they did to me and what they've done yes. to thousands of people. Yes. 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 Yeah, I, it's awful what, what's happened to you. And like you said, you mentioned anatomy of an epidemic. And in that book, Robert Whitaker goes into kind of the societal impacts of all this drugging, which is basically – that the rate, the disability rate, be, you know, where the disability is categorized because of mental illness, has gone up six times on a per capita basis since the introduction of the so-called miracle drug uh, Thorazine in the mid-1950s. And most, you know, I don't know that all of it is attributed to that, but but the vast majority of it is. And uh, I, it's just so important to try and get people you know, to understand what's what's going on. And yes, again, and on, what really you're sorry what happened to you. Thank you. And what you're referring to there on page eight of, as a matter of fact, of anatomy of an epidemic, the data is from the Social Security Administration 
on page eight, and it shows a graph, and it shows how the disability rates have gone way up since 1987 when the SSRIs were first introduced. And my first, one of my first thoughts when I heard when I read Anatomy of an Epidemic and I saw that particular graph uh, was that he had gotten the data from the Social Security Administration. So to me, the government knows. They they everybody know that knows. They are, uh, everybody knows. So I was, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody so knows. But everybody has trouble questioning because if the authority says so, and this is the way the system operates, and, and hundreds of thousands of people earn their living prescribing right. and called treating. By the way, you would like my book too, uh, Psychotherapy and the Stories We Live By, in which therapy is put in quotes. Because my argument is we have to get rid of the entire language of the mental health system. You yes, will never to me, it's a mental illness system. Yes, but there is no such thing as mental illness. It's a lie. I know, but what I'm getting at is they create illness, and then they label people with these various right. labels so that they can continue to drug them. Right, right. And that has to be brought to the public, and very few professionals, very few lawyers like Jim and very few psychologists like myself will come out publicly. And I can do it now comfortably because I'm retired, and I don't earn my living uh, yes. uh, any longer. But when I, I, I taught, and when I started writing about this stuff, you can imagine how I got attacked. At one point, it was close to retirement, they took away my ability to teach abnormal psychology. And I had colleagues I had known for 30 years walking around and telling students, don't take Dr. Simon's course because he's crazy. Yeah. And these were people that I had long-term relationships with. Because when you try to, it's like going into a temple or a church and yelling out, God does not exist. Mm, doesn't yeah. work well. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks it for does. taking my call. I'm going to hang up and I'm going to continue okay. to listen. And um, Jim, I'll be emailing you. I want to ask some further questions. Thank you very, you very bet. much. Thanks, Wayne. And good bye luck bye. to you, Wayne. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, what else? Um, I think your book is absolutely fabulous. I hope it sells a million copies. Um, well, by the way, I wanted to ask you this. You self-published this, didn't you? Yes. Did you do all the heavy lifting yourself? Well, I had, you know, I, uh, I had an editor. But basically, you know, so, you know, that I felt was essential. Um, Although any mistakes that remain or probably got introduced by me after Danya Sheldon got you know did her editing because I okay. quit tinkering with it, but yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know, I uh, you know Amazon kind of has taken over the world and you know has certainly uh, there's right. some problems they with it, but it, I I I looked around for you know tr you know and then talked to people and and it just seemed. Uh, the prospect of getting a regular publisher and then Very having hard. it really being promoted and having it priced where people could afford it was just not, you know, was not very likely. And, and Amazon makes it really easy. I know. Um, I mean, it, it was a lot of work, but it's, it was basically very easy to do it. You just yeah. 
upload so the I have files a, and well, then they start selling it. Book Baby did mine, and it's posted on at least seven different kind of uh, venues. Um, but Barnes and Noble and, and Amazon are the two big ones. Uh, but it's very, very hard to get it noticed, extremely difficult, and it upsets people. Ah, wait a second. We have somebody else come in. You don't mind if I take another call? No, no, I think it's great. Hello? 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 Yes, Hello? who's calling? Uh, this is uh, Judy Day calling from Canada. Hello, Hi, Judy, Judy Day from Canada. And uh, I'm sure Mr. Gutstein has heard me before, and I've been uh, communicating with him since I, uh, my credibility and my career and everything was destroyed in uh, 1995. And, what was your career, uh, Judy, that I was, was destroyed? Nurse, I was, was a clinical career? educator, nurse educator, quality assurance. Oh, boy. And, and what happened? Uh, well, I just happened talk- to get sick. I just happened to have a, a, a sinus infection and bronchitis, and uh, I was given uh, some uh, uh, medication that I was sensitive to and allergic to after having 30 years in in, uh, in a nursing career, and I uh, had a psychotic break due to the medication. Was it a steroid? Pardon? Were you given a steroid? I was yes, I was on a, an antihistamine, and I was on an ant, a decongestant, and I was on Gravol, and just just uh, uh, drugs that I was uh, totally sensitive to. And anyway, I wrote my book. My book is published and written, uh, Judging Judy. That's my case because I took the psychiatrist to task, and I ended up. In the Supreme Court of Canada, but I didn't. I didn't win my case because the Supreme Court of Canada didn't uh, didn't hear it. Um, and but the, the the psychiatrist I had as my medical expert was uh, amazing. She interviewed me for a full week uh, here and uh, did a medical expert report saying that there was no way that I could be so highly functioning all my life, and all of a sudden, at the age of 50, uh, be given uh, first a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and with, without any any history of any kind of mental illness before for 49 years of my life. My, my, my. how there's no thinking that goes on. Yeah. No, it's Nobody an automatic reaction. And the thing it's is, the same reaction that, when somebody says you're a sinner. Yeah, and and you the committed the sin. The psychiatrist, the the psychiatrist who does the initial uh, diagnosis, he has to uh, he has to change that or reverse that. Nobody else can do it. So you still have that diagnosis, and he just put his he just did not because he was so incompetent, and he certainly uh, mismanaged my care that he would not uh, he would not reverse the diagnosis. And uh, so I've been living with that uh, label now for, well, I'm now, uh, that happened in 1995, and now this is 2020, and uh, I'm still, I don't take any medications for any, any psychiatric, in fact, I don't take medications for anything, the odd aspirin, but uh, my life has just been destroyed by having this moniker of a mental illness over my head for all these years. 
How do, who published your book, Judy? Alulu.com. Lulu. Oh, Lulu. Yeah. I, I self-published it in the States, and I must say uh, uh, I sold about uh, 250 copies, and now I've just set, sort of let people, when they hear my case, I said, just go online. It's their PDF. You can download it. I just let it go because I just want right. people to read my story. But I'm hoping right. to get right. another one published again in 2021, which will be 10 years since the first one, and just say judging Judy uh, 20, uh, 10 years later. And you be the judge of what happened to my me and my life in the last uh, uh, 20 years. It's terrible. Yes, yes. But I'm, but I'm More than terrible. One. I mean, I've had, you know, I've, I've gotten by, but I certainly haven't been gainfully employed like I would have been or... Because once you get labeled with a mental illness, you have no credibility and you have no career. You have nothing. And it follows you all your life. It follows you all your life. It's just like uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And if I yeah. hadn't have been yeah. so mentally strong as I am and, uh, being, and my positive attitude that's carried me all my life, I wouldn't have had a life. I'd be dead. Yeah. So there you go. That's my my story, and uh, so I'm hoping now the the next uh, year that I'm going to get the rest uh, get the book, uh, just the last ten years, and just add on to what's happened to me. Yes, and yes. It's happened to many. I mean, uh, Dr. Eleanor Stein. She was my medical expert, and mm-hmm. um, amazing woman. And she said, "There's no way that this woman uh, could have uh, been as." highly functional as she was all her life and then been taken down like this and she just uh, uh, you know she said I felt I owed it to my profession of psychiatry to be her expert witness and come and testify and the judge would not even accept her medical expert report no she had to, she had to come and get examined and cross-examined but her court her 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 paper, I don't know how many pages she wrote. It cost me thousands of dollars because uh, she spent her time uh, going through every file, every medical file that I ever had, and wrote this report. And the judge in Newfoundland and Labrador wouldn't even accept it. No. Now, there's my case. Yeah, and I'm, thank you for coming online. It takes a lot of courage to do this. Uh, yes. But eventually, if we keep speaking out, maybe it starts to make a dent. That's right. Courage is the capacity that can only confront what you can imagine. Yes, yes. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank By the way, you, I'm going to look up your book. Thank you. Um, Judy, I have your number. You called in. I'm yes. going to look at your book, and maybe I'll have you on to do a show. Oh, I'd love to do that. Would you like that? That would be great. I would love to Absol- do that. Yes, because this I get heard all over the world, but I don't have a lot of people who listen. Um, I, I keep waiting for some kind of a breakthrough because that could start to make some kind of a difference in the number of people who start to think about this. Because this idea that you're mentally ill, it's reflexive. Oh, it, it, it destroys it's like saying to somebody, you're a sinner. Yeah. Once once your once the cleric labels you the sinner, nobody asks what was the sin, and maybe there was no sin. 
See, we don't use sin anymore in the religion of psychiatry. It is mental illness. You're sick. That's Broken. right. And any time now that I go into emergency for whatever, ever reason, this is the first thing that will come up. Yes. Still, right. after yes. all these years. Yes. Listen, thank you for calling in, Judy. And I think you're going to hear from me. Okay. Just look at because I'm always looking for people to come on, tell their story, and more and more people will hear this, and maybe yeah. it starts to make a, a, a real difference. Certainly, yeah. certainly books like yours and, and certainly Jim's book yeah. uh, deserves to be read by as many people as who can read. <laughs> because yeah. well, it's J-U-D-I, not, not J-U-D-Y. Judge Thank you. Judy. Okay. Yeah, my wife's my favorite show is Judy. <laughs> so. <laughs> but, yes, but I had to put J U D I because I didn't want yes. her to sue yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Judy. You have a good day. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going Okay. Um, this was unex- unexpectedly wonderful today. <laughs> I mean, people calling in and talking about this stuff. Anyway, yeah. um, are we done? Is there anything you'd like to, you know, we have a few minutes. What would you like to add to finish the show? Well, and, um, I guess the the main thing is that you just, you know, we had Wayne call in and Judy call in and describe what, what happened to them. Just, you know, they're just living regular lives and then, bang, psychiatry comes and destroys them, and multiply that literally by millions of people. And, millions. That's, and you know what, that's the most, what we're dealing with. There are now, somebody told me recently, a statistic, 5 million children, pre-adolescent and youngsters, young, very young ones, are on psychiatric drugs. Yeah, even babies, even infants. I mean, they're giving in. What, you tell me what a psychotic infant, you know, looks like. We we used to have a different name for it. What, what happened? If the parent was diagnosed with mental illness, they want to give them the drugs as preventative. That's right. the logic. Pro drama, right? Yeah. You're going to. So yeah, you're going to. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's just a horror, and it's like why yes. you know, we just yeah. have to try and make people. Uh, understand what's going on and so you know my book is the zyprexa papers it's available on amazon it's available at barnes and noble and i think your local bookstore can order it um right so um yeah i really appreciate you having me on and uh yeah it's my my honor jim it really is well thank you you're very kind okay and i hope we can talk again um, maybe next I'll, I'll decide. Do you go to the ISEPP conference? Um, I try to. You know, I've missed a, co- a few years, but I'm really hoping to come to this one. And I think it's in October in Portland, Oregon this year. And so yeah. I'm really hoping to make it. Uh, I don't, you know, I'll be, I'm turning 80 this year. I say it, and it's like a sense of unreality comes over me. What right. the hell is that? 80. Uh, so I don't travel all that well at this point. I mean, I can, but but it, uh, I don't really uh, do the kind of traveling. My wife and I don't.
travel like we used to. But I'd love to come there if you're there and meet, you know. I, I knew a lot. Of, I was part of ICSPP. Yeah, I knew you then. I don't know if you remember me, but I, I gave some presentations. No, the name is familiar. Uh, I, yeah, and, yeah. and by the way, frustrating things is that I, I organized it. It was 2004 and 2005. I organized those conferences. I did all the inviting. And I created an agenda. And I tried to get people to have a, at least one big session where we develop language that gets rid of all the psychiatric terminology, such as treatment, mental illness, patient, doctor, because talking to people is what really helps. Forming a relationship is what I argue helps. And I couldn't, it was like I was talking into, into the air. The argument well, was psychotherapy trying, I know, but I, I think and drugs. More, yeah, I think there's kind of, at least at the ISEP group, there's kind of more willingness to look at that. I agree. I mean, like, for example, I just don't call electroshock. I don't call electroshock ECT, you know. I mean, it's electroshock. It's not therapy. Yes. Um, and I try not to use mental illness, you know, except in quotes or say people have been diagnosed with mental illness. Uh, but I, I don't I, I'm perfectly um, comfortable with saying people go crazy, which I noticed you use you use in the beginning. Um, yeah, so I think language is really important, and we you know have kind of lost the war on that, or at least yes. lost the battles, and we really need to. It's a very important thing. Okay, um, so I'm going to say good afternoon. Um, I know you're reading my book. Yeah. And you do me a favor, because I, I give me a five-star review if you believe it deserves it on Barnes and Noble and Amazon, because I tell you what happens. I figured out what happens. If you have a book, and somebody l looks up a book, th they, for example, if I look at my book. They'll, at the bottom, it'll say maybe you're also interested in similar books. So if you get enough reviews, apparently, your book then gets attached to that list of maybe you're interested in this book, too. Uh -huh. And I think that's how it works. So the more reviews you get on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, the more likely the book then gets a, a, a placed on that, you know, a picture of the book is placed in a way so when somebody looks up another book that has some kind of similar content, it shows up. Ooh. And, and Chris, somebody told me 7 million books on Amazon. 7 million books. How do you get right. noticed? Yeah, <laughs> right? it's tough. It's tough. It's but tough. anyway, good luck with it, Jim. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Take care. You too. Bye.